Well, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Chris. I'm the founding senior pastor here at Emmanuel. And about a year ago today, about a year ago today, we opened up our Bibles to a book of the Bible called Amos. The book of Amos. And one of the things that the prophet Amos did is he called people out. He called them out for honoring him with their lips, but then not honoring him with their lives. Here's an example of one of the passages we looked at about a year ago today. Take away from me, this is from Amos chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Take away, take away from me the what? The noise. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and let righteousness be like an ever-flowing stream. Amos told that audience, he said, your songs are like noise. How many of you don't want that song that we just sang to be noise? Four of us? Okay. How many of us don't want that song to be noise? Right. We, I, we don't, at this church, just so you know where we're coming from, we don't want this to be noise. We want this to be sincere. When we say, God be my everything, we want that to be true. We want it to be everything. Well, not wanting our songs to be noise and reading passages like that out of the book of Amos, we began to ask some really hard questions about what does that look like? And we specifically, about a year ago today, we asked those questions. What does this look like in a world where human trafficking is this reality? And we pressed into that just absolutely gut-wrenching reality of human trafficking. And as a father of two girls, it was especially gut-wrenching for me. Well, that, that series wrecked me on many levels. One of, the, one of the moments that wrecked me the most was when I watched a video that many of you recommended. I'd never seen it before. It was called Nefarious. I guess it still is called Nefarious. So I, I, I got this DVD, and, I, and like a lot of you, my schedule is so packed, so I popped the DVD in while I was doing some multitasking. Just wrecked me. What Nefarious does is it goes all around the world, and it shows how human trafficking looks different in different places around the world. And I'm watching this, and it just was horrific. And what made it so unsettling, besides the obvious of just the content, was the fact that I could multitask and have this on in the background. And isn't that like life, right? All of these things are happening all around us. All kinds of things, horrible things are happening all around us, and many of us are able to multitask. We can go through life, and we're insulated from it. We're insulated from these realities. Well, in this series, what we're going to do the best we can do is to press into the realities surrounding refugees, surrounding immigration, and it's really easy for many of us to insulate ourselves from the realities. We can't hide from a lot of the stories that come out on news and all that, but we can insulate ourselves from reality. Now, we've got a lot to cover over the course of the series. Let's begin here. Inside your bulletin, we have these green note pages. I'd encourage you to write this down. It is natural. It is natural to insulate ourselves from pain, right? That is natural. If something's painful, it's, it's our instinct, right, to insulate ourselves from it. What caught me by surprise in the months leading up to this series is how easy it is to insulate ourselves from issues surrounding refugees, insura- uh, issues surrounding immigration, even in cities like El Paso, Texas, and even in cities like Juarez, Mexico. You can insulate yourself from it there. From the start, our church has had a relationship with the children's home in Juarez. And El Paso, Juarez, if you're watching the news at all this summer, it was ground zero for a lot of the discussion the animated discussion surrounding these issues. A lot of the news stories, if you were watching the news this summer, 
May, June, July, I almost guarantee that you saw footage of the bridge that we cross every year. If you were watching the news in August, I almost guarantee that you heard about a story that happened at the Walmart that we were at just a couple weeks before of a shooting that happened there. Well, this year, I went down early. I went down early for our July trip to get things ready for the group. And what blew me away, because this message was on my mind, what blew me away was how easy it was for me to insulate myself from those realities in El Paso and in Juarez. I could insulate myself from the realities. If I stuck to my normal route, if I stuck to my normal route from the airport to Whataburger to Costco, across the bridge, through the aqueduct, up to the children's home, if I stuck to my regular route, I wouldn't see the tens of thousands of people who had fled to that city, from Cuba, from Nicaragua, from Honduras. I could avoid the realities that were happening just outside my view. If I stuck to my normal route, I could avoid seeing those folks. I, and, and what they could do, these, these people could be reduced then to images on a TV screen. They're just in, they're images on a TV screen instead of individuals that all had a unique story. If I stuck to my normal route, I could avoid the confrontations at the border and the detention facilities and the courtrooms. I could avoid all of that. And what I could do, I could let my news sources define the narrative for me if I stuck to my normal route. Guess what we're going to do in this series? We're going to go off our normal route. When it comes to immigration, if most of us are honest, if most of us are honest, very few of us are doing the hard work of hitting pause on our politics, questioning our narratives, exploring what the Bible actually says, fact-checking the rhetoric on both sides, and listening to voices who see things differently. Don't let the guilt come over you. This, this is how most of us are. We have so many things going on, we're insulated, right? Here's another way of expressing what we're going to attempt to do in this series. There's a place to write this in your notes too. In this series, we're going to unsolate ourselves. We're going to unsolate ourselves. One of the things that I hope that we can unsolate ourselves from is simplistic thinking on this issue. We've got to do that. I've got friendships with people in Juarez that go back more than 30 years. I spent a lot of time this summer asking a lot of questions. I went down saying, I don't, I'm going to, I don't know anything. Tell, tell me what, from your perspective, tell me, tell me what you think about all this. And the title, Complicado, the title from this series actually comes from one of my friends in Juarez. Her name's Soli. And it came as we were sitting around the kitchen table. And I'm like, what do you think about all of this? She goes, es complicado. Es complicado, which translated in English, I bet you can guess this one. It's, it's complicated. If more people could, if nothing else, if you came away from this series, being able to go, it is complicated. Rather than it is simple, just do this or just do this. If you could come away from this going, it is complicated, that would be a win. It'd be a win. I couldn't agree more with this quote that I came across as we were preparing for the series. This is a book from a book called Welcoming the Stranger. It says this, partisans of a particular policy position are apt to view the issue as very simple. It's right versus wrong. It's us versus them. Yet, it is these easy issues that often prove to be the most complex. And they're the hardest to resolve since our presumptions keep us from hearing the other side. Within this debate, a growing middle 
recognizes this is not a simple issue. They want a more thoughtful, informed understanding of the issues than offered by the two-minute screaming matches by advocates of different perspectives on cable news channels and talk radio. Can I get an amen? Let's go after more thoughtful. Let's go after informed. Let's unsolate ourselves from myths and misleading statements and look at actual facts and figures. Let's unsolate ourselves from our own complicated history as a nation comprised almost entirely of immigrants. Let's unsolate ourselves from the scope of the refugee crisis, a number that's growing by an estimated 37,000 per day. And, and, and. Let's unsolate ourselves from generalizations and stereotypes because everyone has a unique story. Everyone does. Exactly, says Rick. In our church family, sitting next to you, right here at Emmanuel, we have first-generation immigrants from Mexico, from Ecuador, from China, from Switzerland, from India, from Australia, and the Middle East. Everyone has a unique an individual story. As we unsolate, let's also unsolate ourselves from just how broken our system is. That was one of the eye-openers. People say, oh, people should just get in line. Oh, tell me about the line. And tell me about how that works. Tell me about it. Because almost no one understands it. Here's a quote I came across. This is, this, think about how broken this quote is. Asylum can be an arbitrary process. Think how disturbing that is. That asylum can be an arbitrary process with life or death consequences. Try to pull yourself into a situation where you're seeking asylum. And imagine if it was arbitrary. Imagine you're in a life or death situation and the process is not clear and the process is not consistent. Imagine you're Samir. Samir is a refugee from Iraq. One day, Samir was going home from work, and he was stopped at a security checkpoint, and he had a split-second decision to make. Here's his decision. He carried two ID cards in Iraq because he realized, if I get pulled over, I'm going to have to pull out the right ID that says I'm with the right religious group because if I pull out the wrong ID, they're going to kill me. So I have to decide in that moment, who is this? Which religious identification card should I pull out? If I pull out the wrong one, I'm probably dead. He gets pulled over to the checkpoint. The militants take him to a deserted location. They didn't even ask about ID. Instead, they started torturing him. They started interrogating for hours. And when they finally got to the answer that they thought they wanted, yep, we've tested you out. You're with us. You're with our religious group. They decided to release him. As they were about to let Samir go, one of the militants found Samir's cell phone. They looked at it. They saw his wife's number. They called his wife. They started asking her questions. And because her questions led them to a different conclusion, they brought Samir back, they tortured him some more, and then they shot him six times and threw him in a dumpster, thinking he was dead. Today he walks with a limp, he's got a scarf that he wears to hide the scars on his head. So imagine that's you, that's your reality, and you survive that, and now they know where your wife is. And imagine asylum is arbitrary. Imagine there's not a clear and consistent pathway for you. 
Because there are millions of stories like this, because there's millions of them, the stories blur into stats. And that's part of the danger, isn't it? Here's a stat. In the Congo, in the Congo, in the rough, our time that we're in this room, 50 women are raped. And as a stat, it hits you at one level. But what if you knew that person? What if you knew her? What if you knew her as your mom, as your wife, as your daughter, as your friend? It takes on a whole new level, doesn't it? When we unsolate ourselves, all of a sudden statistics, they take on a whole new meaning because the scope just becomes incredible. Can you see why prophets like Amos challenge us? Do more. Do more than honor God with your lips. Honor him with your life. Honor him with your life. But here's the problem. What does that look like, right? What does it look like in a world where there's so many needs? What does that look like? How do we respond well? How do we do that? Especially when something is so complicated like this. Well, we're going to do our best in this series to work our way towards application. We're going to work, do our best we can to work towards application. Some practical things that all of us can do. You know? But today, we got some foundations to lay before we get towards that. Today, we got some foundations to lay. Today, what we're going to do with the brief time we have, is I'm going to try the best I can to unsolate the scriptures a little bit. And for us to see just how strong God feels about these things. And I'm doing this in part because a very small percentage of Christians are actually looking to the scriptures on this. A very small percentage. Here's one of the stats I came across. It said this, a recent LifeWay research survey of American evangelical Christians. So again, this survey, they're not, they're not surveying the general population. They're specifically surveying people who are considered evangelicals, which means Bible-based, trying to order your life around the scriptures. And they found that what percent think about immigration issues primarily from the perspective of the Bible? What percent? So 88% are primarily becoming informed by other sources rather than starting with what, what does the scripture say? Well, this morning, let's do our best to unsolate not every verse. It's going to be impossible. But let's unsolate the big picture of what the Bible says about borders. Let's start here. This is number one in your notes. The Bible what? You Say the word out loud, please. That's a strong word, isn't it? But the Bible commands in multiple places. The Bible commands God's people to extend compassion towards displaced persons within our borders. Now, it gets very nuanced then in terms of what that means, but there's a command to do this. One of the resources I looked at, get this, said that welcoming the stranger is the second most repeated command in the Old Testament. I would not have guessed that. Second only to worship the one true God. Number two most repeated command is to welcome the stranger in your midst. You guys, just a quick side note, that puts the Bible in a different category than anything else that was written at that time. All of the ancient Middle Eastern literature that they can find of the day, none of those other documents talk about the stranger like this. None of them do. The Hebrew word that we translate as either foreigner or stranger or sojourner or immigrant, it appears more than 90 times in the Old Testament. 
And on the back of today's note sheet, what I did is I took a list that uh, many people referred us to, um, and I listed them. So you can look at these if you want. In fact, I encourage you to look at these in context. Fact check me on this. This is a partial list of some of the verses, many of them repeated on purpose. So you can see that the Bible repeats these commands over and over and over again. There's a lot in the scriptures about these things. Here's an example of what you'll find in those 40 biblical examples. This one's from Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. God says through the prophet Malachi, I will be a swift witness against those who thrust aside the sojourner. I'm going to be a swift witness against you. Advocacy for the sojourner is presented in the form of multiple commands in the Bible. And I included that partial list in your notes. Again, so you could fact check me on this. You can look up the scriptures in context. Well, in addition to general statements like the one that I just read, there's also specific instructions. Here's an example of a specific instruction that comes out of the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, 9 through 10. It says this, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap of your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for who? For the poor and the sojourner. And he ends it with this. I am the Lord, your God. Remember that passage because we're going to see this in action in just a few minutes. All right, well, when our teaching team asked the director of Latino ministries for our Northwest Conference very early into this whole process, we said, Mauricio, what scriptures would you pick? What would you pick? And this is before we were seeing how many of them there were there. It was funny because he basically said, these are my words, not his, but he basically said, just open up the Bible and close your eyes and point, and you're going to land on something. Because in addition to all of these commands, all these instructions, there's also story after story after story that's an immigrant story. There's a place to write this in your notes. Number two, how does God, what does God say about borders? It says we come from a long line of refugees and immigrants. Just start doing that. Start thinking of Bible characters and then try to come up with which ones weren't at some point in their life. Either an immigrant or a refugee. You know, just a short list off the top of my head that I'd written down here really quick is Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, David, Elijah, Daniel, Esther, Philip, Paul, and Jesus himself. That's a huge portion of the Bible. Books like Isaiah and Amos, they do a great job of calling people out for forgetting, forgetting their own history and for neglecting those who are now as they once were. What I want to do now left with the very brief time we've got is I want to go a little bit deeper into one account, the account of Ruth. And it was fascinating to reread Ruth through this lens Because this is all there. And one of the things I love about the book of Ruth, we've got an example of where people did this well. They actually did it well. Instead of, don't do it like this, don't do this, you forgot. This is, they did it well. So here's a ridiculously quick overview of Ruth, starting with Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bible with you, please open to me there, with me there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love, love, love for you to go home with one absolutely free today. You can read about these great immigrant stories yourself. Um, we keep a copy, or we actually keep several copies there in the back for you to take home. They're there as a gift for you. All right, here we go. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah 
went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and the two sons. All right, just about every phrase in this opening verse is loaded. Let's reread the first seven words together. Can you read these words with me? In the days when the judges ruled. All right, let's just talk about that for just a second. The judges, the time of the judges was a period of significant spiritual, social, and political instability and unrest. Which draws you into the story because it starts like this. So imagine if you were in a situation where there was an invading army that either came in and was exploiting the people or imagine that a warlord was in charge of your area. What would you do? Right? It gets us thinking like that. Okay, let's move on. The next seven words. Here we go. Read these with me, please. There was a famine in the land. All right, there's a famine in the land. The, the verse one puts us in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Anyone recognize that name before? Our next series after this is our Christmas series, which is insane. You might hear Bethlehem come up a little bit in, in the Christmas time. The name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. House of bread. Why is that ironic? Because there's a famine in the land. And as I was doing my research, I'd never read this before. Bethlehem was especially susceptible to famine because in that city, there was no, in that little village, there was no natural spring. And so if you didn't have rain, you didn't have water. So again, pulling ourselves into the story. Imagine if, if you're in an area where there's complete unrest and these warlords are coming through and these different armies are coming through. Now remember, imagine in that same land, there's no food. No food. What would you do? What would you do? Right? That's what we're asked to think. The Bible instructs us to love our neighbors as we love who? Ourselves. You know? Okay, as we would likely do ourselves... These people sojourned. They sojourned. It's a word that means they left their home. They left to dwell in a land that was not their own. All right, let's look at six more words. Same verse. We're still in verse one. Still in verse one. Look at these words. Where did they go to sojourn? In the country of Moab. All right, in Moab. Moab was a nation across the Dead Sea from Judah. And it happened to be one of Israel's ancient enemies. It was one of their ancient enemies. So let's recap the situation of this family. See if any of this is repeated in history at all, besides this point. This family from Bethlehem was in a time of national upheaval. There wasn't enough food to eat, and the best option they had for another place to live was a nation that saw them as a threat. That has been repeated on continent after continent after continent for generation, for generation, for generation, right? Okay, so in verse 2, we actually learn the names of these people. Then comes verse 3. They jump right into the tragedy here. Things get worse. Elimelech, we're picking up with verse 3 through 5. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Those two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. The two sons died, so that the woman was left, Naomi, without her two sons and her husband. In that time and in that place, how secure is the future 
of a widow. It's as unsecure as it comes. She's basically powerless in a society. And so if you don't have family, you really don't have anything. Family was the social welfare safety net. And since that was now gone, Naomi said this to her two widowed daughters-in-law, verses 8 through 10. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept and they said to her, no, 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 no. We will return with you to your people. Naomi loves these two. She loves them like her own daughters and she wants what's best for them. And often home is that place with people, with customs that you know. Naomi was going to try to go home to Bethlehem and see if she could rebuild a life there. And she said to her daughters-in-law, go home, go home. And let's jump to 16 and see what happened. One of the daughters said, okay. The other, Ruth, said this. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Now, Ruth may not know much about Naomi's God yet, but her words echo God's covenant promise here. The promise where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. There's a love that Ruth is expressing in words and actions with her lips and her life that reflects the very image of God. All right, (laughs) we're up to verse 16. Does any of this apply to immigration, refugees, any of this at all? Wow. All right, let's move on to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. This is after they, they head back to Bethlehem area. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Okay, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Naomi said, Go, my daughter. All right, remember that command in Leviticus. It comes into play. Because we have Boaz here, who's a man of God. And so he's going to follow God's commands, not just with his lips, but with his life. And so one of the things he's doing is... He's a landowner. He's a property owner. He's got fields. And so like God said, when the harvesters go through, they don't pick up every single piece of grain. They leave it there for the poor, for the sojourner. We're about to see that command lived out. All right. Boaz turns out to be a great guy. Let's jump to verse four. Verse four says this. And behold, Boaz comes from Bethlehem to check out his fields. He says to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answer, the Lord bless you. Book of Ruth paints Boaz as a godly boss. He's running a godly operation. Within the borders, within the borders of Boaz's property, people honor God's commands. They treat one another with respect. And when Boaz learns that Ruth is gathering grain that's left behind her, not only does he say, hey guys, leave some extra. He goes the extra mile and he says, and don't any of you lay a hand on her. In nations where women don't have protective rights, how is that different than is the case for most women who are poor? I mean, it's not even on the same page, right? 
As workers put in their shifts, this is interesting. As the workers, Boaz workers put in their shifts, they see that Ruth has a remarkable work ethic. Here's a report that one of the workers brought back to Boaz. This is from verse 7. They said, okay, that Moabite, she's so polite. She's like, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And then she came, and look at this. She has continued, continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So here we get a glimpse into the brilliance of God's commands. One of the things that makes immigration complicated, one of the many things that makes it complicated, is if you are in charge of some borders, how do you have a compassionate response, but also not um, enable people? How do you do do both of those, right? That's a complicated thing because you don't want to disempower people. Well, the Bible is clear in at least a couple places, that if a person isn't willing to work, they shouldn't expect to eat. And so this command in Leviticus, it makes it possible to steward your land with generosity while providing an opportunity for the immigrant to maintain the dignity of working, to provide for themselves. Well, as the narrative continues to unfold, both Ruth and Boaz set outstanding examples to follow. Ruth is an example of love and commitment and determination. She's humble. She allows herself to be coached by Naomi who understands the culture. And she works hard. She works hard to to provide for herself and for Naomi. Now, Boaz, he's an example of generosity and integrity and tact. He finds himself having to build these bridges and navigate all of these, these complex legal realities. Many of these legal realities, if you read Ruth, you get to the last part of it, you're like, what is going on there? I don't understand this language. I don't understand these practices. Here's an example of what I'm talking about, Ruth 4.7. Boaz wants to marry Ruth by this point, but another guy has a legal right to her. So obviously, the shoe ceremony should play in, right? (laughs) Obviously. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This is the manner of attesting in Israel. I throw this into the mix because this also brings forth another important thing. One of the complexities is the cultural differences. They can often be so different that just to try to understand one another... Because every culture has its own spoken and unspoken rules. All right, we're running out of time. Let's fast forward to the end. It's got a happy ending. Woohoo! I like happy endings. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And she bore a son. And they named him Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. As in King David. As in Israel's greatest king. David, King David, is the direct descendant of a Moabite immigrant who married a Jewish man. Well, this story, think think of the storyline that we just read here. Our story opened with an Israelite woman who had to leave her home and she experienced tragedy and death along the way. Our story ends with the same woman celebrating the birth of a baby born to another woman from another country who had become like a daughter to her. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that 
beautiful. It's okay to say yes. It, it is beautiful. It is beautiful as individuals from different nations and cultures took personal responsibility to honor God and to love their neighbors. God was at work. This was person to person. God was at work and look at what happened. God invites us to join him in good work. There's a place to write this in your notes. What does the Bible say about borders? It says we are all sojourners too. Verses like Philippians, Philippians 3.20. They remind us of our sacred history as God's people and our sacred truth right now. That even if we have title to a little piece of property, our ultimate citizenship is where? It's in heaven. So our ultimate king is who? It's God. He's our king. And there's many, many, many times where we're called to live differently than those around us. So how do we do that well? We follow the example of one of Ruth's descendants. Who knows what happens if you keep tracing that family line from David all the way up to a carpenter who had a son named Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And he traveled that same road to Jerusalem that Ruth took when she crossed in from Jericho to Jerusalem. On my way down to Juarez last summer, I was reading a book. And that book told the story of a tourist, a tourist who was flying back from visiting those same places where Ruth walked, where Jesus walked. And this tourist sat down and was just so excited to talk to the people next to them. And, and unfortunately for this archaeologist who knew a lot more than the tourist, this archaeologist got seated next to this excited tourist. Well, for an hour nonstop, the tourist is like, oh, it was so great. It was so great to visit these places and to see where Jesus walked and to just be there following the footsteps of the Messiah, blah, 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 blah. But then, then he says, oh, here's the only thing, though. The only thing is I wish it would have been more peaceful. I wish it would have been more peaceful. There was so much chaos around all that, those sites, and it really took away from the experience for me. <laughs> And the archaeologist is just sitting there and he just couldn't keep it in anymore. He's just like, what do you think it was like in Jesus' day? What do you think it was like in Jesus' day? Let me leave you with this. Are you approaching the scriptures like a tourist? Or are you approaching the scriptures like an ambassador? Treating the scriptures like a tourist easy to do. It is easy to do. It is easy to look at the address on your driver's license, the nation of origin on your passport, and to think of that as our primary citizenship. It is natural. It is easy. And it's not wrong to recognize that is part of who we are. It is natural to see ourselves first and foremost as citizens of Shoreview or Arden Hills or North Oaks or New Brighton or Vannis Heights or White Bear or Circle Pines or Blaine or Roseville, St. Paul, Minneapolis, and everything I left out. It's easy to do this when it comes to the Bible. It's easy to live our lives, spend a little tourist time at a, with a sermon, podcast, maybe even reading the Bible ourselves, and then go back to just living our lives however we want to live them. Jesus didn't gauge Scripture that way. He saw himself as, I'm one who was sent, and Scripture informs everything I do. Everything I do. He invites us to do the same. We're not going to depart from the Bible for the rest of the series. Oh, here's the Bible part. And then now let's talk about the issue. That's the foundation. This is the foundation for everything. 
everything, all the weeks that follow. And we invite you to join us as we press deeper than together. What does this mean? We invite you to join us here as we try our best to, to unpack some of these things. We also encourage you to get involved in the conversation. We have these groups called small churches where you can take these things that are being presented one way here and you can have two-way conversation about these things. We invite you to, to stop by that resource table that we have out in the lobby. And there's all kinds of resources and organizations where you can do a deeper dive to learn more or to get engaged. Well, one of those resources that we're pointing people to is a book called You Welcomed Me. And as a worship band comes forward to seal this time with a song, I want to challenge you with a question that the author asks in the opening pages of the book. As the author does his best to insulate us or unsulate us, as the author does his best to unsulate us as readers from the realities around us, he asks this question. He says, how can we see what's happening all around us and not forfeit some essential part of being human if we don't help? An essential part of being human. Now, helping is going to look different. Not everyone is called to engage in this the same way. In fact, we're devoting an entire week to saying, how do you discern what my part is, right? It's not all going to look the same. But let's all be open to what it is that God would have us to do, right? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it like this, we must learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as what? Fools, fools. Amen. All right, let me pray for us and let's seal this time with a song. Father, I pray for our guests among us here today and those who aren't followers of Jesus. I pray that they'd be able to just sing along. But I pray right now for those who have committed to following you. I pray that we could make this song a proclamation that right here, right now, we'll recommit to saying yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.